0: Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Tyler Bickford, who is the author of Tween Pop, Children's Music and Public Culture. Tyler, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm hoping you can start by telling us a little bit about how you got interested in Tween Pop and researching and looking at this sort of phenomena.
1: Yeah, so one, I mean, one origin story goes back very far to working as a baker and being kind of stuck and dead in dead end jobs, which is not the story I'll tell. Um, in 2007, I was doing research for my dissertation, which uh, became my first book, um, which is mostly about kids and MP3 players. Um, and so I was doing research in a small school in Vermont. Um, and in September, October, like very early on during the school year, um, kids were like in their pretend play on the playground were doing things like playing high school musicals. So, um, you know, they would pretend to be characters from high school musical. Um, and, uh, and this kind of Disney channel music. So high school musical. And then at that moment, um, Hannah Montana and the Jonas brothers was starting to be, um, or even more than starting to be was really kind of, uh, ascendant in the music industry. Um, in 2006, the soundtrack to the high school musical movie which was an original made for tv disney channel movie was the best selling album in the year in 2006 um so so kind of this tween pop stuff was um was really successful the rest of the music industry the discourse was kind of negative and people were struggling to figure out new business models um at, with kind of challenges of file sharing and and things like that um while this kids music stuff was um was increasingly successful um and so And the kind of public discourse around this was mostly kind of confusion and surprise. Um, you'd get, uh, stories in like the, um, kind of business section in newspapers or on, on the radio, um, talking about, uh, you know, uh, Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus, selling out a national tour in a very short amount of time and just kind of a lot of wonderment and confusion. Um, and then of course also concern, right? Like about this, um, uh, kind of children's media being so prominent and central and visible and changing so rapidly. Um, so I was, you know, working on research, that was a little bit more about technology and language and kids social lives in school. Um, all of this stuff was happening around me and, and around the kids I was working with at the time. Um, and so this book is really kind of me having put a pin in that and said, I need to kind of go back and sort of answer some questions and figure out what was happening in 2007 when um, I think in a, in a genuine sense, uh, kids really were at the center of popular culture um, for a couple of years in the United States. Um, so this book is kind of my attempt, uh, I guess a decade later, to um, try and figure out what was going on.
0: Right. You very much situate this in that specific about t- high school musical came out in 2006. So that about five year t- four five year time frame there um, when high school musical started until about 2011 or so.
1: I kind of frame this really like 2001 to 2011. So um, I think of the brand kids bop um, as being kind of the first major gesture here. And there was there were there were other things happening in the late 90s. Um and um and so my periodization is kind of tw- tw- 2001 to 2011 um this decade where uh kids music kind of um expanded and grew and then in some ways was dominant um and then by the end of it um kind of became normal um but yeah so 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 those 10 years there
0: right and we've had um and you sort of talk about this in your intro a bit like we've had sort of forays into children's music and children's sort of culture and sort of the teeny bopper phrase but this is this time where you're really looking at the idea of the tween and what that means and this coming sort of to the forefront of consumerism and music culture so can you talk just a bit for anyone who is not really um aware about this sort of idea of the tween and tween culture and that sort of time frame in children's lives.
1: Yeah, so uh, tween is this neologism um that um you know it's a a combination of teen and between um and it was really developed by uh consumer product marketers starting in the 80s um to kind of identify Um, but also kind of bracket off and segment um, this particular consumer demographic that um, they thought of as maybe too old for kind of this, particularly in the clothing industry, um, maybe having outgrowing the children's clothing section in the department store, but not yet ready for the adolescent or teenage uh, section in the department store. Um, And so starting to try and find ways to um develop consumer products clothing but also toys and media um for for kids kind of between childhood and adolescence um and um and by the 2000s um this had was no longer just a kind of narrow bit of marketing jargon but really had kind of entered uh everyday discourse and so parents would talk about my tween and even kids at this age would sometimes describe themselves as tweens or younger kids would say, Oh, I'm gonna be a tween soon. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I remember thinking when I turned 13, oh, I'm a teenager. Um and the term tween wasn't part of my kind of self-identification, but for kids uh, uh in this period, um it really was. So it became a common part of kind of everyday discourse about um how uh age is segmented in childhood. And then, um, and the argument I make um, is that by the 2000s, rather than being kind of a new uh, kind of um, segmentation of age and consumer categories, it actually had started to spread out and became uh, sort of its own center of gravity. Um, so um, in, and you can see this in kids media and TV and, and games and toys and other things um, that, if tween was kind of originally maybe nine to 12 year old, something kind of narrow like that, um, media that was uh, specifically designated as tween media, um, like something like the high school musical movie, um, which was uh, which had characters who were in high school, um, but was also kind of toned down. So didn't have themes about you know sex and drugs and other things that um, kind of John Hughes styles like high school. John Hughes-style high school movies might have. Um, so toned down for younger kids, um, but then even younger kids than nine-year-olds, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, might also be watching this and enjoying it and identifying with it. Um, so in 2007, I remember clearly um, second graders uh, playing pretend as Vanessa and other characters on, on High School Musical. Um, so so the tween category... Um, sorry, uh had a lot of, um, expansion downward. Um, but it also created some room for expansion upward, um, into older ages. Um, so kids who might be not just nine to 12, but even 13, 14 or 15, um, could still, uh, identify with, um, and care a lot about artists like the Jonas brothers, uh, or Miley Cyrus. Um, and even, you know, so kids even who are going into high school might still have um, this sort of media as being the kind of media that they uh, are feel most strongly connected to. So um, so I think there's a narrow sense of tween, which is like 9 to 12, but by the period I'm writing about, um, the this had expanded so much that it's really not unreasonable to think of it as covering, you know, Five or six, up to fourteen or fifteen, and 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 that's one of the things that I'm that I'm kind of interested in is the way that these shifts in how we think about age um, have kind of cultural impacts. So in the twentieth century, the teenager was this really important figure, um, and um, you know if you think about the. British invasion about the Beatles, um, you know, the image of Beatlemania um, often includes 12 and 13 year old girls as some of the most kind of active, you know, screaming enthusiastically in, in response to them. Um, but when people talked about teenagers, um, they would talk about 16, 17, 18 year old, um, kids and, um. And so there was this slippage where you had this category whose kind of center was 15, 16, 17, but which expanded you know, both downward and upward. And tween had some of the same effects. So I think the tween category shifted the center of gravity a little bit in the way that the media industries and the consumer industries um, address themselves to children. Um, so that meant that on the one hand, very younger kids um, were seen as maybe accessing things that were older for them um, at younger ages. but um, there were also opportunities for older kids to still identify with things that were explicitly marked as childish.
0: Right. And so throughout the book, and we'll get into this, we'll get into the chapters and look at this, you sort of um, look at this sort of, child the entrance of children into this public sphere um as consumers and especially focusing on the idea of childhood, um having identity markers of being white and being feminine and and how that plays out. And you do that through looking at Miley Cyrus, and Hannah Montana, and also Taylor Swift. But before we get to those two and, and those chapters, you start out with the idea of Kids Bop and the sort of sing along Industry, so can you maybe share a little bit about what Kids Bop was? Is Kids Bop still around? Do they still?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I think Kids Bop is the thing that I kind of still find most exciting, Um, and I I I think Kids Bop. So Kids Bop is this um, is a, a music brand that was created by um, the record label, Razor and Tie. And Razor and Tie, and and so the first kids' Bop record came out in 2001. Um, Razor and Tie, their early success was in um, direct marketing to television, um, you know, CD compilations. So those kind of, you know, like, hairband hits of the eighties kind of advertisements that would scroll down. Um with, um that was that was Razor and Tie. And so um so Kids Bop sort of fit into that mold of a kind of uh marketed directly to consumers rather than through stores um compilation records. And then Kids Bop was also a little bit like karaoke in in that um the songs themselves were re-recorded with studio musicians um And um, the particular innovation was that they would take very contemporary top 40 pop songs and um, include a chorus of amateur children singing along with the hooks. Um, So instead of just a, um, instead of just, you know, a a, um, kind of generic reproduction of uh, contemporary pop song, you have this addition of kids who clearly sort of stand in for child audiences, um, singing along in, in enthusiastically to the best parts. Um, so then, so kids' Bop would release albums pretty regularly, kind of along the lines of the now that's what I call music compilations. Um, so they were, they were pretty, pretty contemporary, um, kind of keeping up with the music that was on the radio. And, um, and they were extremely successful. Um, and so um by you know two thousand five or two thousand six, uh, Kids Bop records were consistently the very top selling kids albums, um, and um, and sometimes even would would chart on the kind of national Billboard charts. Um, and then Kids Bop, uh, to answer your question, Kids Bop is still around. Um, they've uh, starting around two thousand nine, they transitioned quite a bit from that direct marketing kind of anonymous choruses of children model to a model um, based on um, identifiable, uh, bands of child performers. So the kids' Bop recordings now are, um, instead of having a kind of anonymous adult studio singer singing the leads joined by amateur children, you now have a group of, um, five named, uh, child artists. So kind of more like the Mickey Mouse Club or something, um, singing along, uh, singing these songs. And then also, and so a big part of this is, um, is that supports, uh, live touring um, and other kind of merchandising. But that, that ends up, I think, in interesting ways, being a really different model and a really different um, conception of pop music from the one that I'm really interested in, which is this early one where they're really stripping out all the stuff that we as pop music scholars often think of as central, you know, what um, Simon Frith talks about, the grain of the voice of the pop singer, um, which is really distinctive to the individual celebrity voice that's kind of close mic and, and gets all of this kind of focus in the mix, um, and that's just kind of stripped out altogether, and what you get instead is this um, uh, really exuberant kind of representation of the kind of amateur mass audience singing along, you know, in their cars or in their showers or in their bedrooms or, or whatever it is, and, um, and so some of these early kids pop recordings are, are, to me, really powerful and even kind of profound in um, the sort of uh, take they have on what pop music can be. Um, as a kind of democratic mass medium, rather than one that's really kind of obsessively focusing in on the details of a celebrity voice or body.
0: Right, and you use, one of the examples you use is Since You've Been Gone by Kelly Clarkson, and that idea of um, the videos and kids performing in their bedroom. so this sort of bedroom culture that is very much a private space. Uh, I think you mentioned Mary Celeste Kearney and other women who have sort of talked to scholars who have talked about this idea of the bedroom as sort of a private space, especially for young girls. And this move to making that into this more public and bringing children's music and children's space into sort of the public sphere. So can you talk a bit about that too? And, and what Kids Bop really did with that?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, this, so in 2005, Kids Bop volume eight, um, uh, included a recording of Kelly, Pop- Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone which is an amazing song and the Kids Bot version might be even more amazing. Um and then Kids Pop also put out a DVD of music videos um and the the video for their version of Since You've Been Gone um was this really interesting video which um focused on a um girl and her brother in their bedroom um kind of playing a uh, Playing at singing along. So there's a little um, battery powered stereo on their bed, and she's singing into a toy shark as a microphone. And the brother is kind of playing with stuffed animals and and turning them into um, members of the band. And then at the chorus, the video um, cuts to this clearly fantastical um, uh, nightclub environment, which is um, dark and has an audience full of children, in many cases, children even younger than the kind of Centrally tween aged, so 19, 11, uh main characters of the video, um, and then this this main character girl is on stage, and these stuffed animals have now turned into um, full size humans in animal costumes playing in the band, um, and so there's this interesting kind of depiction of of a fantasy of kind of being a celebrity, of being a public performer, of having um, an enthusiastic audience, and having this whole thing um, be framed as Kind of appropriately childish, and even maybe for children, right? That it's natural to have, um, you know, talking, moving, anthropomorphized animals as the band for a pop act. That it's natural to have a dark nightclub that's full of children. Um, these are all these are all things that, in fact, actually uh, contradict most of our assumptions about the relationship between popular music and children, um, which is that those kind of settings for popular music, especially dark and nightclubs are exactly the settings that are the least appropriate for children. Um, and so, so kids pop is kind of playing at imagining at sort of treating, um, if you could maybe make a mark for this, I'm stumbling a little bit. Um, so, uh, so kids bop is kind of putting forward this fantasy of children as public performers. Um, and, um, and then it's locating it as pretend play in a bedroom. Um, and so that I, that's actually ends up being a rhetorical move that I've identified as kind of pretty common in a lot of tween media, um, which I think it itself is interesting. Um, that, uh, this thing that's happening literally, which is you're starting to sell music to kids. You're starting to put on tours. Um, that kids are you know expected to attend right so rock concerts and things for kids so this thing that is actually happening in the world in the media and discourse um kind of promoting it often frames it as happening in kids imaginations in their bedrooms and so um so this feels i think very clearly sort of to be a rhetorical attempt to kind of reconcile um what on its surface seems like a contradiction, which is that, you know, we don't think of it, you know, rock music nightclubs as, as places that are appropriate for kids. So it's really asking everyone to to kind of rethink those spaces of music consumption um, as being spaces that actually are kind of sheltered and domestic um, and, uh, and then to, to reorient toward the bedroom. And of course the bedroom is this longstanding site of music consumption. Um, and so it's it often kind of uh, this industry was often kind of um, Picking up these long-standing um, ways of thinking about things like bedroom culture, and then reframing them again, shifting the focus from a sort of central figure of like a teenage girl um, as being the kind of uh, primary consumer of popular media in in the bedroom to to reframing this in terms of explicit markers of childhood and childishness, like you know stuffed animals, anthropomorphized animals, um, and um, and so then I also trace this into kind of a kind of longer history of these representations and thinking about things like the Teddy Grahams ads in the eighties that showed the kind of stuffed teddy bears as the Beatles or as Elvis with kids on stage with them, or Nickelodeon had a really interesting advertising series in the nineties, um, which also was playing with this idea of kids as being, um, uh, audiences for, um, rock and roll, um, and, um, and so, but these were all always explicitly framed as fantastical. And so one of the things that was happening during the 2000s was uh, these representations of kids participating in mass music culture were increasingly framed as literal rather than fantastical. So literal on the one hand happening in kids' imaginations. Um, and then in what I think of as an amazing movie, this, the Justin Bieber biopic, um, oh, whose name I'm blanking on. Um, the um, I have a whole chapter about it. Um, <laughs> never say never. Um, which also, which, which, so the Justin Bieber biopic Never Say Never, which in two thousand eleven came out, and instead of uh, imagining kids fantasizing in their bedrooms, it really puts the internet and YouTube at the center of this imagination. And so, um, so um, instead of having kids performing on stage in a nightclub being a fantasy. Being somehow magical or impossible, um, it makes it fully literal, and it says that kind of YouTube is the thing that is connecting children in their bedrooms or in their backyards with um, you know the same children at a concert at Madison Square Garden um, and a figure like Justin Bieber who kind of is is shifting back and forth between the child in the family bedroom and the child on stage at Madison Square Garden. So all of that is to say that I think Kidz Bop is kind of remarkable. And if there's one thing that I could have achieved with this book, it's to encourage people to go back and look at some of that early Kids Bop and um, and listen to it. Um, it's not necessarily good, but it's just fascinating. And to me, it really, um, it's it's a really remarkable kind of take on what pop music is and could be.
0: Yeah. I, this whole thing also reminded me when you did sort of the history of like uh, Chuck E. Cheese and those spaces where they had the animatronic animals and, you know, you come and play games and then they sing weird songs to you. <laughs> and yeah, <the> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yes. I think that's right. Um, and, and that are also darkened, right? Like there's this interesting mm-hmm. kind of toying with, um, with kind of overlapping those things, like these sort of family sheltered spaces, um, that are also some kind of strange simulacrum of adult, uh, nightlife. And then you have things like David Buster's, which are kind of been the the reverse of that, right? Like, which is Chuck E. Cheese for adults rather than, yes. you know, a, a nightclub for kids. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah. So you, um, move into looking at your next two chapters, look at two female artists that are still very, very famous. And, um, but the first is you, you sort of look at Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus, and, um, what happens with disney right so disney has been failing for a while with their sort of large kid-centered animated musicals and so they sort of move into television and and sort of compete with nickelodeon and so can you talk a little bit about the what disney's role in this sort of tween tween rising and then in particular what happens with um hannah montana and miley cyrus
1: yeah. Um, so uh, Disney is definitely at the center of a lot of, of a lot of this, mostly just because they had so much power, and I think they were the ones who had the power and in some ways the credibility from the public and especially from parents to um to lock some of this stuff in. Um, um so one of the things that I'm interested in 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 the history of Disney's kind of turn toward pop music in the two thousands, um, is that it was part of a, a longer trend of children's media professionals and children's consumer industry professionals really kind of wringing their hands about tweens and about older kids there was this very strong discourse in the 90s that um, that kids television needed to figure out ways to attract older children so not teenagers right but older children um, and that that was where the future was um, and that those were the kids who that was the only place to kind of expand um, and that those were the kids who, um were you know these kind of important new consumers or who were being left out somehow by the existing industry. And um and so in the 90s, Nickelodeon was successful at that. Um and um and Disney meaningfully was not, um, especially on television. And in the 90s, Disney also um was having so much success with its animated feature musicals, right? The Little Mermaid and The Lion King and these other things. Um, that they were fine with the Disney Channel, the television network, um being kind of a uh, a secondary sort of addendum to that. Um, but uh the Disney Channel in the late 90s, um, for a brief period would do things like air concerts um by um NSYNC or Britney Spears or Leanne Rimes um kind of famously um and other networks like Fox Kids and Nickelodeon would do the same thing um but that kind of abruptly stopped uh in the late 90s um when um parents and others sort of decided and 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 you know the the networks themselves decided that it was just a little bit too risky figures like NSYNC and Britney Spears um even though they a really important part of their audience was not just tweens but even children. Um, their uh, presentation was, um, you know, sexualized, uh, and their music was uh, about romance and things even stronger than that. Um, and so, um, so on the one hand, those artists wanted to be on networks like Disney, the Disney channel to reach out to child audiences. Um, But on the other hand, I think networks like Disney eventually found those contradictions just to be a little bit too strong. Um, And so they stopped doing that. But the other part of that is that, um, you know, Disney in particular as a company has always kind of wanted to own its IP. And so the idea of having, Britney Spears come and do a concert, and you might get the viewers for that, but you really don't get anything else, right? You don't get any other kind of secondary sales, um, and you don't own the rights to any of the the any of the publishing rights or anything else. Um, really, didn't fit the Disney model. So Disney started um, Disney started kind of uh, you know developing new approaches to this. The other thing in the '90s that Disney did was Radio Disney, which was this radio network that. Um, that would play folks like Britney and Christina Aguilera um, and also would play um, oldies and gimmick songs and, and other things. Um, Lizzie McGuire in the early 2000s uh, was a kind of proto Hannah Montana in some ways. I mean, Lizzie McGuire was very successful and, and doesn't take a backseat to anyone, I don't think. But um, uh, so Lizzie McGuire, um, you know, had uh, had the successful television show that then turned into made-for-team movies and also um, uh, pop music albums. Um, but it was really in 2006 when the Disney channel produced high school musical um, that, and I think that was kind of a surprise success. I think they were doing that. They thought it was going to be good, but they didn't think it was going to be quite the phenomenon that it ended up being. Um, And so once high school musical came out in 2006 and was so successful, then Disney uh, really started injecting resources into developing new acts. So, and, and uh, in 2007, that was Hannah Montana. And then very quickly, the Jonas Brothers. And the Jonas Brothers started out not as a TV show, but as a a recording act that then um, had a presence on television. Um, So anyways, all of this is to say that um, all all of kids' TV in the 90s was chasing older kids and trying to figure out how to do it. And in the 90s, um, I think everybody involved kind of understood pop music as being an important uh, way to attract older kids, but they hadn't quite figured out... to reconcile some of the challenges that including pop music on your network created right because on the one hand you want older kids but you also don't want to be putting material that parents think is threatening or inappropriate on your channel and kind of uh, diluting your brand um so what disney did and i think what disney figured out was that they could you know start doing it in-house and then they could be in control um and really precisely calibrate those kind of cultural representations of sexuality and of gender and of romance and other things um, and then that also meant that they could kind of own all the IP and they could spin out all of the merchandising they wanted and, and whatever else. Um, and so by 2006, um, you know, the idea that everyone had in the nineties, that pop music was the way to attract older kids by 2006, that really finally sort of came to fruition with high school musical. And then over the next five years, everyone just kind of started pouring resources into these pop music, um, on TV acts, um. So I think that's the I think that's the story the the one other um to me really interesting element here is that you know when you read the um kind of industry literature in the nineties um most people are really talking about kids in a sort of ungendered way right like and about tweens in an ungendered way. We want to attract older kids um we want to attract tweens um and they were thinking of that as largely a gender neutral category um, by the 2000s, I think if you talked about tweens, I think most people implicitly and even explicitly um, saw the kind of figure of the tween as being a girl, as being gendered feminine. Um, And I think one of the interesting elements of that is that because pop music, um, which also has very long-standing kind of associations with gender um, and with femininity in particular, because pop music is already feminized and because pop music is the thing that um, Disney sort of used as its central tool for attracting tweens, um, I think that had a, played a major role in uh, really sort of locking in the gendering of the cultural figure of the tween as specifically being feminine or a girl. Um so, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you use so so you use Miley Cyrus um and Hannah Montana to really explore that, right? To explore not only that sort of feminization of and um of the child, but also sort of through this post-feminist lens. Um and so can you talk a little bit about that role of Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana in in I don't know if projecting is the right word, um, but, but highlighting these, those elements.
1: Yeah. So I, Hannah Montana, I think is a really interesting show. I mean, it you know, it's, it's not, again, it's not necessarily good. Um, but it's definitely interesting. Um, so, uh, and one of the things that's important for me is looking at figures like Miley Cyrus or Taylor Swift who remain, you know, major figures in, in, uh, entertainment, um, is, uh, and a, and a big part of the project of this book is, um, really attending to this very early period in their careers, um, when they were very successful and they were very successful as child artists. And so I want to look at this stuff, not just as kind of, you know, the early history of these people who became adults, but also kind of in its own sake and for its own right, you know, what was happening in 2007 with these child artists and with these shows, um, that were very much targeted to child audiences, um, And I think sometimes the stuff that happens later and the scandals and, you know, the the major success um, can kind of overshadow some of the interesting things that were happening earlier. So the show Hannah Montana is a show about um, this uh, girl who lives a double life as a, you know, quote unquote, normal, everyday school kid um, who lives in a normal or actually very affluent um, kind of suburban family family. who has a double life as one of the uh, biggest pop stars in the country. Um, and so everyone who she knows in her everyday life just knows her as Miley. Um, but then they also, they don't know that she is also the biggest pop star in the world, who's Hannah Montana. And so, um, so the, the kind of situation of the sitcom is the challenges that that double life and that double identity creates um, in her kind of everyday life. And, um, and so I read this a uh, a little bit as allegorical um, as as a show that really is trying to work through some of the tensions and contradictions of um, this kind of problem of what it means to have kids in public and have kids be um, major participants in public culture, major consumers for popular music, but also increasingly uh, major kind of figures on stage in, in popular music. Um, and what I think is very interesting about Hannah Montana is that... Um, in meaningful ways, it's not really original at all. Um, it's borrowing in some pretty kind of direct and hackneyed ways from, um, the, the tradition of post-feminist women's television, um, especially from the nineties and early two thousands. So shows like Murphy Brown and sex in the city and Ally McBeal, um, which got a lot of attention and which were really working through, um, you know, what was seen as this kind of post-feminist problematic of, um, women who had, uh, found professional success and in finding professional success, were experiencing tensions between that and these kind of deeply held desires that they also had for traditional experiences of femininity, like um, childbearing and marriage and romance and, and things like that. Um, so, um, so Allie McBeal, Sex in the City are, are very explicitly narrating this. Um, and, and Hannah Montana uh, in kind of, to me, quite weird, uh, but also very interesting ways, um, really sort of uh, borrows these frameworks um, of, of these kind of post-feminist shows um, to to kind of work through the problem, not of what does it mean to have a professional life and then also want to have kids and a husband, um, but here trying to adapt it to this context of childhood, so in which you have professional success, but what you really want is, um, you know, strong uh stable uh friendship relationships and and so what you really want is this kind of normal sort of childhood life um so that is sort of uh in some ways totally parallel to this kind of post-feminist media problem of you have professional success and what you really want is a family life um and then when when it gets adapted to childhood um what happens is that these friendship relationships um like in particular Miley's you know uh best friendship in the show, these friendship relationships become the ones that are actually really interestingly the sort of site of, um, all the kind of, um, sort of stress and anxiety, but also desire as the thing that being a successful professional is kind of, um, maybe creating challenges for, Um, So anyways, I think Canada Montana is a show that doesn't have any clear resolutions and is really contradictory, Um, but it it is a show that's that's very much kind of uh, unsettled and unresolved and really grappling with... Um, This problem that's a totally made up problem, right? Like, oh, I'm a famous pop star. um, That's impacting my friendships, but which also is actually very similar to this problem of kind of the explosion of tween music and tween media at the same period, which was that the culture industries were trying really hard to reframe children and childhood as kind of central audiences for popular culture rather than as just kind of marginal or peripheral audiences, um, which again, raises all of these contradictions, parents and other caregivers and and lots of others really resist that and, and get a lot of concerns. Um, So Hannah Montana is a show that just feels kind of very of the moment um, where it's just very unsettled. um, It's very fraught. And, um, and, and I think in some ways it's kind of, it's using these scripts from, an earlier generation of post women women's media to try and apply and kind of grapple with some things that the cultural industries were trying to make happen in, in children's media.
0: Right. Yes. And I, I always found that show really interesting because I'm like, how do they not notice that she is the same person? Um, <laughs> but what's interesting too, is that, so you look at this as, as also then having, um, miley cyrus needing to then want to break free of sort of this this character this hannah montana who she's very much thought of as that character right so many people think of miley cyrus and hannah montana as the same character and so her moves to sort of break out of that and break out of looking being looked at as this child star Um, in particular the move that happens at the 2013 BMAs that still talked about, what, seven years later. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that move that she attempts to make um, and, and and what happens with that, with her, with this sort of um, tween music?
1: Yes. Yeah, so Miley Cyrus had this early success in 2007 and 2008 as a Disney Channel star. Um, and then pretty quickly it seemed clear that that Miley Cyrus, the artist, um, you know, was uh, struggling with some of the constraints of Disney and and was ambitious and and kind of was interested in, in, in breaking out into something beyond Disney. Um, but that kind of Disney brand and the association, um, you know, the identification everyone had of her as a child star um, actually kind of weighed her down, was a bit of an anchor. Um, and so she made kind of multiple attempts to... Um, to put out records and songs and videos that, um, that seemed clearly designed to sort of shift the public image of her, um, from a child star to something more like a conventional, uh, you know, adolescent, you know, pop star. Um, and those were kind of consistently unsuccessful, um, right. Until, uh, 2013 and bangers was released. Um, and, um, and the main thing that she did with bangers, um, which was on, on the one hand, there was a lot of content around drug use and there was also a lot of content around sexuality. Um, but, um, but I think the the kind of dominant feature was uh, her sort of strong adoption or appropriation of black musical styles. So Miley, uh, you know, was twerking in this period. Um, and so twerking is a, a dance style associated with the American South that involves, um, you know, Shaking one's hips and butt um, and uh and and so she was doing she was very actively and clearly to everyone involved trying to um, put forward this kind of risque you know inappropriate um, uh, even vulgar but especially heavily sexualized image um, and and the thing that she turned to was african American culture right um, and this uh, she came in for a lot of criticism and I think really valid criticism where what she ended up doing was um actually doubling down on longstanding stereotypes and assumptions about the sexualization of African-American women, um, and the objectification of African-American women's bodies. Um, and also the sort of appropriation by white performers of African-American, uh, musical styles and dance styles. Um, and, uh, and I, the thing, um, that I'm kind of trying to work through in my discussion, and the thing that I feel like I can contribute is a particular perspective on childhood here, and on maybe girlhood in particular, but on age. Um, so there are, are uh, you know, better critiques um, uh, of of Miley Cyrus's appropriation of African American culture and her kind of objectification of, of black women. Um, but what I'm really interested in is that. In all of this uh, representation of black culture that she's doing, she's also including these representations of childhood. So on stage at the VMAs, she has these stuffed bears dancing um, and and other things like that. Um, and so it's really interesting to me, um, and interesting, I mean, troubling also, um, that it was clear, I think it was clear to Miley that the thing she needed to break out of was this kind of Disney trap. And what Disney meant to everyone was kind of kids media. Um, but the tool that she used to sort of finally break free of it was these representations of African-American culture. Um, and so she was sort of setting up uh, an opposition that I think is usually kind of tacit or invisible, but I think she was kind of helping make make visible an opposition between Childhood, on the one hand, or these like very sort of uh, normative cultural constructions of childhood associated with Disney, and then on the other hand, these um, stereotypical ideas about African American musical culture and um, and uh, Black women's sexuality and Black women's bodies, and so that is not an obvious opposition at all, right? That African American culture and children and childhood are somehow opposed, and that if you lean hard enough into the one, you will kind of finally. Break free of your associations with the other. Um, But it seems very clear to me, and I think, kind of, you know, closely reading the, um, you know, cultural text that Miley was producing at this time, it seems very clear that she was, she kept escalating these efforts to break free of the Disney childhood brand. um, And when she was finally successful, was, um, you know, she layered. You know, heightened sexuality. She layered things like drug use. She layered countercultural things, and it was when she sort of finally layered these appropriations of black musical styles on that she was was successful at that. Um, and so, what this is helpful for me at doing, with, you know, twenty thirteen is actually kind of after the the core period of my book, but it's helpful for me in kind of retrospectively looking back at the what I think of as the tween moment, this period from 2001 two thousand one to 20 2011 and sort of helping to see the uh, ways in which it was implicitly at least racialized um, and that what was happening in, in tween media and tween culture um, was actually very strongly invested in a kind of logic of racial whiteness um, and its associations to other, you know, cultural values around childhood and, and uh, femininity and, and childhood innocence. Um, and so it, you know, the show, Hannah Montana, was a show about uh, an artist who performed country music, country rock, who was um, from a family um, that had kind of markers of Southern culture, of white Southern culture. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus, the white country performer, is a member, of, is on that show. Um, Dolly Parton shows up on the show as a relative um, who performs a kind of um, exaggerated um, uh, uh, capital W, Capital T, kind of white trash, kind of um, uh, uh, personality. I'm borrowing from the media scholar Morgan Blue here, uh, to, to some extent. Um, and I want to put that that phrase "white trash" in, you know, uh, under erasure. I, I don't. Um, I think that's a problematic phrase too. Um, but anyway, so Hannah Montana, when we go back and look at it, is also like pretty strongly invested in markers of whiteness. But they're all kind of, um, you know, set in the background. Um, they're not. They're not. Uh, you know, race is not a central topic of that show. Um, and so the whiteness is sort of implicit and invisibilized. Um, but when we when we then jump forward to 2013 and see how actually uh, race was this powerful tool that Miley could use to break free of Disney, I think it's helpful to kind of put in relief all of the ways in which whiteness actually was really central, even if not explicit, um, during the heightened period of the tween moment.
0: And and you use this sort of same critique or a similar critique in looking at um, Taylor Swift. Right. And examining sort of the role of Taylor Swift, who in some ways is very different from Miley Cyrus, but in many ways they have some similar backgrounds, right? That sort of country, cultural, childhood phenomenon. So can you talk a little bit about how you see this sort of cultural appropriation and this whiteness, um, and sort of this childhood femininity play out with Taylor Swift and her career as well? Yeah. So
1: I think, uh, Taylor is is interesting. Taylor, in some ways, did took the sort of opposite route from Miley Cyrus in kind of um, in that she was clearly very invested not in breaking free from her, her kind of early associations with uh, children or young people or innocence. I think might be the sort of stronger value for Taylor Swift. Um, but she was she was interested in kind of retaining that for as long as possible, and so whereas Miley had these kind of series of attempts to kind of break out that were unsuccessful, um, Taylor had a series of albums that were widely received as being kind of literally breakthrough crossover albums, where she was sort of um, where people were happy to accept that she was no longer kind of confined to her innocent sort of country music singer-songwriter um, kind of early persona but really had crossed over and broken out into sort of mainstream success and every time this happened um for a very long period she um, she would then sort of very quickly um, kind of uh, double down on markers of Um, not just innocence, right? So she would start, she would talk about her parents uh, in kind of non sequitur ways um, and, and things like this. She would kind of frame herself as a child but also of um, grievance. So then, not just talking about her parents, but um, you know, complaining about uh, being bullied as a middle schooler, right? So this is someone who just had the most successful album, um, who is at the top of the charts in mainstream pop music, and who is still sort of volunteering, um, you know, her memories of grievance at being bullied in middle school. Um, so she would, uh, and and I don't want to. I mean, I I, I don't want to dismiss her experience. I'm sort of uh, trying to identify rhetorically that she would sort of um, resituate herself, reframe herself in these sort of um uh kind of childish or innocent positions. Um and then and then that too actually frequently was racialized. Um so Taylor's uh maybe I think increasingly strained efforts to frame herself as a sort of vulnerable innocent child, um even as she was kind of more and more a dominant figure in in the popular music industries. Um, eventually she would start to escalate in a, in in kind of the opposite way that Miley would um but by framing herself as threatened by um you know black masculinity so um so famously there's the uh Kanye West at the VMAs where um, Taylor Swift wins the award for best music video over Beyonce's um put a ring on it um that's not the name of the song can we pause here too uh yeah.
0: Single ladies. <laughs> yeah,
1: single ladies. Thank you. Um, so famously, there's this moment in 2009 at the VMAs um, where Taylor Swift uh, wins the award for best music video over Beyonce's single ladies. And Kanye West comes on stage and interrupts her. Um, and um, and she sort of, and, and that whole moment was a kind of media phenomenon, um, and I think People remember it, and even people who didn't wit- witness it still remember it. I continue to teach it, and my students remain aware of it uh, more than a decade later. Um, and that moment was kind of uh, so intense, um, I think, really clearly because of the sort of you know op- opposition between these cultural figures. On the one hand, this um, kind of retiring, small, white, uh, very feminine young woman um, who who at the moment of the event had been sort of describing herself as um, an outsider. She was like, I never thought I would win this. I'm just a country songwriter, you know, these, these things. Um, So she was sort of positioning herself as an underdog and an outsider. Um, And then, you know, and an aggressive, uh, uh, you know, black man, um, who's associated with hip hop rather than country music. So you have all of these sort of like cultural binaries that, um, you know, are all being crystallized on stage right at the moment. Um, You know, in the moment, the whole audience kind of jumps up in support of Taylor, you know, over the next several weeks, like, you know, public culture jumps up in support of Taylor, all of these things, right? Um, But then also actually uh, just several months before that, at the Country Music Awards, Taylor had recorded this um, kind of gimmicky um, uh, video with um, with with the, the hip hop artist T Pain, um, in which, which was called "Thug Life," um, and in which she described described herself as um, T Swift. And um, no, she described herself as why am I? I'm
0: T Swizzle.
1: T Swizzle. Thank you. Okay, so let's start start <laughs> over. Um, so at the VMAs, uh, actually that same year. Um, Taylor Swift had, uh, uh, appeared in this kind of gimmicky video with the, um, hip hop artist T-Pain, uh, where she took on this hip hop name of T-Swizzle, um, and performed in this very, uh, exaggerated, I think kind of, uh, recognizably sort of neo-minstrel kind of performance of hip hop, um, where she and T-Pain are in a darkened, um, parking garage. Um, so they're in this kind of empty parking garage. Um, uh, she's with this black hip hop artist. She herself is wearing chains and a hat, um, and is rapping. Um, but everything that she's rapping about is precisely about all of the ways in which she doesn't fit in that setting. And actually that setting is kind of threatening to her. Um, and so she's rapping about, you know, still living with her parents and how actually it's totally inappropriate for her to be, um, you know, in this hip hop context. Um, so, you know, the the VMAs thing with Kanye seemed, you know, was I think was unscripted and unplanned, um, but it was actually reproducing a kind of cultural script that Taylor herself had quite literally scripted um, that same year, which was Positioning her side by side with a black hip hop artist as a way of kind of doubling down on um, her as the opposite of a black hip hop artist, um, if that if that kind of makes sense. So the same kind of opposition that Miley Cyrus is using um, between African American music and the childhood innocence that she's trying to push away from, Miley is using to kind of reinforce her sense of childhood innocence and to and to reinforce it by framing it as um, this thing that, that is threatened by and opposed to black masculinity. Um, that T-Swizzle uh, video, I think, is, is really troubling um, and also interesting at the same time. Um, and I think it's something that, that's worthwhile for uh, people to go back and, and have a look at, because I think it, um, it actually makes more explicit some of the things that... Um, I think it puts Taylor kind of more... Uh, on the hook for doing some of this stuff intentionally rather than just kind of accidentally falling into the thing with Kanye. Um, and then, you know, on and on when 1989 came out, the song shake it off. She was actually doing exactly the same kind of neo-minstrel stuff where she had a whole thing, um, sending up, uh, sending up, supposedly sending up Miley Cyrus for her twerking, but really kind of again, sending up, uh, African-American, women's kind of dance styles and positioning Miley as really sort of the opposite of that and outside of it. Um, so she kind of, <clears throat> excuse me. So she kind of kept doubling down, um, not just on her uh, identity as innocent, vulnerable and feminine, but actually specifically and increasingly explicitly, um, as white in, in the mix with all of those things. Um, and I think that's important. So this is this is a chapter where I I kind of do work um, past the kind of twenty one two thousand one to twenty eleven framework that I've set for myself. But because it's it, these kind of moments that are happening after are really helpful again for me to kind of go back and look at two thousand six two thousand seven two thousand eight two thousand nine when these artists were getting started when they were all very explicitly identified as child artists or teen artists um, or really tween artists in, in a meaningful sense. Um, and, uh, and when they were less explicit about um, their racial identities, because whiteness has this privilege of being unmarked, um, but in fact, I think we can see in retrospect just how significant their investments in whiteness as something that kind of authorizes childhood innocence um, and authorizes maybe childhood innocence being in public in particular, um, how important that was at this moment when tween music was, was really exploding meteorically
0: and so that last chapter you start to look at then Justin Bieber and his sort of role and, and this idea of being a prodigy and also how he is sort of um uh in his relationship to African American music and African American culture as well but also his sort of th- the role of him holding on to that childishness or, or that childishness playing out um as he becomes a a, a huge star in a matter of months, right? Or less than or a year. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about Justin Bieber and sort of what, in that early, in his early career, what was going on?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, to, uh, you know, just Justin Bieber is also actually um, kind of playing around with race. And in, in some ways he's doing it more explicitly because early in his career, you know, he's a sort of blue-eyed soul singer, which is an established tradition um and he's kind of strongly associating himself with um african american artists like usher um but there's a real kind of gendered logic here too where i think as as a white man or a white child um he uh his his kind of appropriation of african american musical styles um is framed more as um you know a uh, um you know play and uh you know masculine control um and and expansion and, and and things like that and mastery maybe um more more than it is framed as as being a threat and then of course that's also rhetorically how how he presented it um and then yeah so i i spent a lot of time on this twenty eleven movie never say never, which i think is a like kind of a surprisingly really good movie um it's it's um just kind of remarkably tightly constructed. And, um, and the, I think the thesis of the movie, you know, so the movie is a, it's a biopic slash concert film. Um, and so it's following uh, his tour in, in 2010 um, with, and it culminates in this performance at Madison square garden. Um, and then at the same time, it sort of narrates his, his biography and, and his rise to fame. Um, and the, the thesis of the movie really is that um is that kind of social media and, and YouTube in particular are sort of central here. Um, One of the things that I am really interested in about this film, which is kind of presenting a heroic narrative of, uh, you know, major pop celebrity is that it, um, it really, it's, it frames Bieber in pretty ungenerous ways. Um, So I think it doesn't just position him as any biopic might um, as um, having foibles and, you know, being normal and just like you and me. Um, it really, it positions him as, um, I mean, it explicitly frames him as immature, um, as unable to appropriately make good decisions about his body or his career, um, as, at some points, as a liar. Um, and these things, uh, And but none of these actually are kind of uh, have the tone of being criticisms. Instead, they're sort of celebrations. And what they really are, I think, are celebrations of uh, childishness. Um, So I think these sorts of um, characterizations of any other person, or specifically an adult person, that would be read as uh, very strong criticisms instead are framed as um, kind of making Bieber more himself and kind of a better version of himself. So the uh, the climactic moment in the film is, is Bieber is, um, needs to cancel some concerts uh, on this tour because his, his voice is in bad shape. Um, and, uh, and he has this team of people who are, I think, literally his employees, but they're actually framed as his sort of parents or guardians. Um, and, you know, they they tell him he has to cancel this, this show it's for his own good. He really doesn't want to do it. He's kind of off pouting. Um, and they kind of, even though, again, he's sort of the, he's, I I think actually literally the boss here. Um, they, they end up framing themselves as saying, oh no, we're making this decision for your own good. Um, Whereas at the same time, you know, they're interrogating him. They're saying, you know, you're not supposed to be yelling. You're not supposed to be using your voice in these ways. You were just seeing friends when you were visiting home. Did you yell at all? And he says no. And the, the movie immediately cuts to footage of him playing with his friends and yelling, right? So quite literally saying he's this child being interrogated by disciplinarians um, and lying to get out of trouble. Um, so it's, I think it's interesting right, to, to take someone who, like Taylor Swift, is, uh, you know, is, is um, a major figure in pop mu- music at the moment and, and really go out of your way in a film that you control the scripting and editing and everything else on um, to frame this person as, as immature and childish in, in pretty negative ways. Um, and this was again when you know Bieber at this point is like sixteen, right? And sixteen is is starts to be pretty old. So you actually maybe have to make uh, extra efforts to present someone as being um, as as seeming like a tween or or, or younger. Um, but one of the things that that does, uh, and and the other thing in this film that I'm really interested in is um, is that that lets the, his accomplishment of like selling out Madison square garden and having this really successful tour that lets it be framed as, um, much more significant, right? Because it's not a, an adult pop star doing it. It's some, it's an immature childish child who, who's doing that. Um, so it becomes kind of even more heroic of an accomplishment. Um, and, uh, and then there's this the threaded throughout the whole film are these representations of Twitter and also of YouTube and of kind of kids singing into kind of rectangular screen boxes as if in the window of YouTube. Um, And, and and combined with all of this footage of Bieber himself as a child before he was a celebrity um, singing into the kind of YouTube screen. And this is kind of famously his, his story of um, of, of being discovered and and being successful was first being a YouTube star. Um, and so then, uh, at the end of the film, there's this really remarkable moment where the footage of Bieber performing in Madison square garden using, um, kind of interesting, um, uh, uh, computer graphics, uh, you know, manipulation gets sort of washed away into footage of, um, you know, thousands or millions or kind of uncountable children singing along with Bieber um, in their backyards and in their bedrooms. Um, and so going back to this kind of discussion of Kids Bop, um, there's this, you know, the, the movie is focused on the idea of Bieber selling out Madison Square Garden, which is another of these kind of darkened nightclubs. Um, and it it really, in the end, explicitly sort of settles on the claim that Madison Square Garden is kind of just one more site of music consumption, like a bedroom or a backyard or a living room or a school bus or or something like that. So, um, so, and YouTube really lets them kind of do this work of domesticating Madison Square Garden and making it an appropriate place, not just for a child to be on stage, but also for children to be filling up the uh, seats.
0: Mm-hmm. And you sort of, in your conclusion, you have a couple of reasons why you think this sort of decade of this tween pop really came to an end. Uh so can you talk a little bit about what you how you saw this sort of fading or, or why it sort of faded from from its position?
1: Yeah, I think so I, I think mostly what happened was that it was successful. Um so all of the kind of storm and drang around um, you know, uh this explosive um visibility of children in pop music in the 2000s, um, what was for a reason. And it was because that hadn't quite existed before. Um, and all of these commercial and corporate actors were really motivated to kind of make it happen. Um, and, uh, and there were a lot of these kind of, uh, contradictions in doing it. And these kind of cultural tensions and tensions around, you know, cultural values, like children should be sheltered at home rather than, you know, out in dark nightclubs and those kinds of things. Um, and so to, um, to, to make it work kind of required uh, a lot of visibility and a lot of hand rigging and a lot of fretting and a lot of contradiction. And, um, and I think what ended up happening was that, um, was that yeah, it was successful, um, that it finally eventually was normalized. I don't know that the contradictions stopped being contradictory, but um, people had held them in their head for long enough that they stopped feeling um, uh, urgent or scary. And... Um, and so I think kids became kind of one more demographic for pop music. Um, other things that happened, the you know, uh, the Disney Corporation, uh, I think, reconciled um, its TV and, and movie arms. You know, in the 90s, they were focused on movies. In the 2000s, that had stopped working for reasons they couldn't figure out. And they were focused on, so they shifted their focus to TV and pop music. Um, and then, you know, Frozen came out. And, and uh, Frozen is, you know... Um, kind of the return to this, in a way, this kind of 90s success with the animated features. Um, But the thing that Frozen did was that it, I think, learned the lesson from tween pop. Um, And the music for Frozen is um, much more strongly structured like pop music. Um, And you have artists like Demi Lovato and even Adina Menzel, who is, you know, associated with broadway um but really is a major kind of crossover figure from broadway so when disney you know came back to success with their animated features they were um they kind of learned some of the lessons um from their foray into pop music um other things that happened like uh kids bop which in the 2000s was doing very interesting things um after the 2000s actually was kind of just one more uh you know kind of um um manufactured you know pop music group act um and i don't even i don't mean manufactured kind of critically it just kids Bop kind of was once very distinctive and it became generic and i think that that it was possible for kids Bop to be generic is kind of evidence that this kind of moment of creativity but also anxiety had had really kind of passed Um, And there's a few other things. But um, some of this is me just sort of trying to make sense of this period that, you know, uh, a a frame that I had set for myself early in the project, which was this decade of 2001 to 2011, or, you know, uh, kids bop to never say never. um, And, uh, and to get myself off the hook for having to keep, you know, chasing the present. So so um, some of this was about kind of justifying my periodization so that I don't have to keep, uh, keep chasing whatever's happening in children's culture, um, in children's music tomorrow
0: <laughs> well these artists are getting older right i yeah. mean all the jonas brothers now got married so they... interesting? Yeah. <laughs> i think they're all married right by now yeah. I, think, I mean yeah. i started i started
1: working on this in 2009 2010 the first article from this was published in 2011 and it's a full decade later um and so, yeah, no, that's the other thing is like i you know still for me the the moment that's very interesting is is this moment in two thousand six and two thousand seven when this was all happening and um and but you know scholarship takes a long time and publishing takes a long time, and these other things and um and and I think there was a moment probably in twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen where i I shifted my language from now to from you know language of is happening or or is happening now to to language in the past um partly because. Just, you know, things kept changing. Um, you know, the Jonas Brothers broke up and they got back together. Taylor Swift became this version of Taylor Swift, all, all of these things. And um, and and not just for convenience, but also it just kept being clear to me that those, all of these things that are happening with these adult artists in kind of the mainstream of pop music um, are interesting and are fine, but they're very different. And I think in some ways, maybe not relevant to... Um, Uh, A separate question about, which is about how are the children's culture industries constructed? And so absolutely the children's culture industries often kind of, um, you know, produce artists who go on to have successful adult careers. But if we only focus on those successful adult careers, then um, we're never uh, fully giving credit and thinking through uh, what's actually happening (laughs) for child audiences and for child audiences and for this, this industry as a whole.
0: Yes and and as I was reading this I was I kept thinking back to uh Disney well not back to but thinking about Disney Plus and how a lot of this stuff especially what Disney was doing at that time is now readily available for a whole new audience right I have a 9 year old who loves high school musical <laughs> um and, and but it's uh it's going on what 15 years old now and Right. So thinking about those things um, and this new audience and what's coming with that and how they then try to find the, you know, looking at these child stars and then now seeing them as adult stars, but how that sort of plays out as well.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's kind of brand new, right? Like that, you know, that, that High School Musical would be available uh, streaming and so accessible rather than just on a DVD or something that might be easy to get lost or put in the corner. Um, or, or Lizzie McGuire is being rebooted. Um, my students are my college age students who actually would have been too young, I think for Lizzie McGuire when it first came out, um, are, uh, are, are right now, um, really upset that Disney is, uh, not releasing it because there's some kind of, you know, PG 13 style content issues with it. Um, like they really want to watch the rebooted Lizzie McGuire and, and yeah, so, so these, some of these things do get canonized, um, and I also think it's really hard to predict what is going to last and what's not, you know, um, like that, that Lizzie McGuire is something that would have, um, that High School Musical is something that would have, um, and uh, is, I think, I think, very interesting. And I don't think you could have called that at the time.
0: Yeah, no, my college-age students as well are obsessed with, and it's interesting, too, across um, racial demographics, the obsession with some of these things, especially high school musical, um, in ways that I'm like, you guys were like four when that came out. They're like, it's still awesome. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Well, and one of the things, this actually goes back, I think one of the things, uh, among many, but one of the things that this tween music and the kind of, expansion of the tween category did was it gave a lot of permission, people permission to um, kind of be childish, right? So that that idea that college students are still kind of uh, actually feel like it's okay to love high school musical rather than feel like there's, that's a threat to their kind of maturity or adulthood. Um, I think that's a little bit of a, of, of a difference. And I think it has a lot to do with um, tween, Uh, Maybe taking up some of the oxygen and some of the gravitation, gravity from teenager, right? Um, Which was the kind of dominant cultural figure for thinking about age and culture in the 20th century.
0: Right. Um, so we've been talking for a long time. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I go on. I know I'm sorry. <laughs> no,
0: it's fine. Um, but I I mean, this just came out, but I don't know if there's anything new you're working on right now that you want to promote. And I know it's a crazy time of um, for all of us. And so I'm not sure if you're working on anything else or um, anything you sort of last words that you want to get in.
1: Yeah, well, the next project is um, hopefully a uh, a history of the independent children's music industry in you know uh, in the United States. So thinking about folks like Raffi, um, but also Trout Fishing in America um, and Laurie Berkner and, and other figures like that. And this is something I've been doing uh, that I that I once thought actually might be part of this project, but this project got too big. Um, but there's this whole other side to children's music um, and this whole fascinating history of independent artists um, building kind of Sustainable careers and real, meaningful relationships with their fans um, over long periods of time. That um, that this big media stuff really overshadows. Um, so that'll be that'll be a while before it's a book. But I've spent a lot of time the last few years uh, interviewing um, artists and professionals um, uh, who are working in independent kids music, um, and I'm excited about kind of diving into that a little bit more.
0: Awesome, yeah. This also made me think of uh, They Might Be Giants. Yeah, um, who was great as, as I was growing up, right? And you know, and I was in the early college and late high school, and then bringing my son to see They Might Be Giants when he was maybe yeah. four or five, in in a like nightclub in Philly. But it was in the middle of the day, right? And all the lights were on. Yes, Um, exactly. Right? But it was, right? All of that, it made me think of that and their sort of move. And it made total sense to this, like, playful music for kids that when my child was, like, five, six, seven, he just loved They Might Be Giants so much, right? Um, But they also played for the adult audience because mm-hmm. they came out and did some, you know, Istanbul and, and did that kind of thing when they, you know, came out uh, for their encore. So they knew who they knew that those children had parents who um brought them there. But it was really, you know, that kind of stuff was made me think of that too, in reading this
1: yeah no and, and that that's absolutely right and i one of the one of the concerns I have about kind of writing about this very visible stuff is that sometimes it still kind of overshadows the really interesting stuff that's actually happening just every day, not just in you know nightclubs during the day but also in libraries and schools and um, and and kids' music is this big thing one one A person once said to me that more kids' records had been sold out of the trunk of a car than out of any music store um and I, I think that I think that's true. And of course that's changed with the internet. But um but that the real history of kids' music is um is really kind of off the books um and, and a little invisible.
0: Right. Yes. So it's been really great talking to you. Um again yeah, you this too. was thank you for taking the time. <laughs> Yeah, Tyler Bickford, who is the author of Tween Pop, Children's Music and Public Culture, speaking with me for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thanks so much, Tyler.
1: Thank you, Rebecca. Take care.